of Salesflare and this is Founder Coffee. Every two weeks I have coffee with a different founder. We discuss life, passions, learnings in an intimate talk getting to know the person behind the company. For this third episode I talked with Aaron Ross. Aaron became world famous as the guy who set up the sales organization of Salesforce. He wrote a book about the subject and since runs a consulting company that helps companies with their sales, both called Predictable Revenue. Aaron has nine kids, three dogs and more than 40 employees. We talk about how he manages his busy life, about having an ID forging business and obviously about how to organize sales more effectively. Welcome to Founder Coffee. Hi Aaron, it's great to have you on Founder Coffee. Yeah, I'm, I just wish there was actually some coffee here. <laughs> I actually have some coffee next to me. You didn't oh, okay. get coffee? No, it's a little, little slow on that, but uh, oh, okay. I'll get some after. I do <laughs> like it. You're a founder of uh, Predictable Revenue. For those who have been uh, uh, not on this planet for the, for the past few years, what, what, what is Predictable Revenue all about? <laughs> yeah, predictable Revenue... Right. It started as a book, actually. Mm -hmm. came out in 2011. And the book was about how uh, when I worked at Salesforce.com, way, way back when, when Salesforce was small, mm -hmm. under a couple hundred employees, I uh, created an outbound sales system that helped them almost double their revenue growth mm -hmm. in uh, sort of mid and large areas. Left Salesforce a few years later, wrote Predictable Revenue, um, since then, I guess they call it now the, the sales Bible of Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. It's still out. We've had a sequel come out. And uh, we have, I have now a company around it where we do, you know, basically an outbound success company to help companies create uh, results, drive, drive faster revenue through outbound prospecting. Yeah. But cool. Yeah, the book, um, I haven't gotten it translated to any of the languages in Europe. It's still, it's really only right now still in English, in Portuguese in Brazil. It's coming out in Mandarin in China. And funny enough, it came out in Taiwan. So, yeah. And it's in, in well, not in India. But uh, we, we would like to bring it out in more languages overseas the next few years, but we'll see. Yeah, I'm, actually, my wife is uh, Brazilian, and I heard that in Brazil, it's, uh, it's huge. It's a bestseller. Yeah, it's uh, a big thing. You know, yeah. We're in Brazil, you know? They're going crazy for it. So we actually have, a, um, after the U.S., like our second biggest sort of business is Brazil. We have a yeah. separate, you know, unit in, in business there. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I love Brazil. You love Brazil. Yeah, yeah I, I even um, talked to one of the guys at Salesforce, uh, I think a month back or so, who really wants to set up a business around predictable revenue because it seems that this kind of selling is not really known in Brazil. Uh, and you guys are introducing it. Yeah, and it's been, I mean, look, most of the world... Uh, so, for example, one of the key ideas mm -hmm. and is, we'll get to outbound prospecting, but let's start something even more fundamental mm -hmm. is the idea of sales specialization, right? And this is, as far as I know, really in Predictable Revenue, the book was the first time someone came out and said, you have to specialize your salespeople if you want to have a successful, if you want to be able to grow and be successful. Yeah. And what that means is um, you have instead of salespeople who do everything, right? Because for hundreds of years, the way you grew sales was you would hire a salesperson, they would have to prospect for customers, 
they would close those customers and they would probably manage them too. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and that started to change. I mean, like there's always been people who've done it a bit differently, but it really started to change in the last, I would say maybe even 10 years with uh, now the rise of inside sales. So sales special, sales, spe sales specialization <laughs> means um, you have, you divide and conquer. You have many different jobs within sales with people who work together. So you have, prospectors who do prospecting and that's really all they do mm -hmm. and they generate leads for closers or account executives or salespeople who sign up new customers and that's really almost all what they do um, there also might be if you have inbound leads it could be a, a role for inbound uh, lead responders or inbound SDRs or sort of in junior sales reps who respond to the leads coming into the website Right. And again, they would sort of qualify, pre-qualify and pass those to the, the account executives who would sign up customers. Mm -hmm. And then the last type of, of role, these four, these four core roles, the last one would be um, after the customer signs up, you know, and there's actually different kinds of roles afterwards in terms of account management or customer success or professional services, but post sales, all the post sales roles, um, so this, the idea of, again, having this team approach where there's multiple different jobs or roles in sales and they're all working together is a new idea in sales, really. Yeah. And it's, it's the exception. Most companies around the world, like in Brazil, don't follow this. And the model they still follow is salespeople do everything. They prospect for their own deals. They might get some leads from marketing, but they have to qualify them, themselves. They close their own customers and, again, often manage their own accounts. And what I'm saying and said in the book is that you have to do it differently. You have to specialize if you want to be successful, just like any sports team in the world that I know of, mm -hmm. you know, in, in soccer, you don't have, you don't say, Hey, everyone, okay, go out and score and defend <laughs> and pass. You see, you got attackers, you got midfield, you got defenders and goalie. And, but we don't mm -hmm. do that. In sales. So that was, I think probably the most, uh, a fundamental idea that has really changed the way when people read the book, they're like, okay, I, I can't tell you how many notes I've gotten from people who said I did that. I specialized my salespeople and my results doubled. Yeah. Doesn't it make the sales roles more boring? Um, I, I would say, well, for some people it might, but for most people in sales, they're already overwhelmed. They doing five different jobs or four different jobs just means they're yeah. doing a bunch of things poorly and no one likes to struggle. Mm -hmm. No one likes that. So when you, when you refocus them and they can do fewer things better. So not only are, is, are they can be more focused, which is um, you know, easier to stay on track of what you need to do, but they can become more of an expert in that area. Mm -hmm. So if I'm a closer, I can be an expert at closing. If I'm a prospector, I can be an expert at prospecting. And this is one of the reasons there's, there's several reasons why this model is the model you have to go to. Now, there are exceptions we can get to, like if you're selling to consumers or, you know, if you're in a sales model where you have like one or two calls and they close. Um, but we're talking in B2B and almost all B2B, right? This specialization is the way to go. Um, but the, the couple of reasons why this, you have to do this is first, people just aren't that good at juggling a bunch of different jobs. They're just not. Mm -hmm. They're just not. And the people, most people are much better at doing one or two things really, really well. And which is why most salespeople, almost all salespeople that have to do all their own prospecting and all their own closing and all their own managing accounts, they aren't, they just, 
they just aren't very good at prospecting. Right? Mm-hmm. This is why every head of sales complains, my people aren't prospecting. Well, because there's good reasons for that. Because first, they, they don't want to do it because they're just not that good at it, right? They're doing it like here and there. They're not, they just can't be an expert at it these days. So they're doing it part-time when they can. They're not very good at it. And there, you also have the, like your most experienced people, like these, your senior salespeople trying to make cold calls, which is it's just like you have your most expensive person doing something that could be done by a much less expensive person who can do it better, who can be focused on it. Um, so one other thing that happens is when you specialize your sales team and you break them into these different uh, jobs, it becomes a lot easier to understand what is working in your sales team and what is not working. Right. Because yeah. you can see is, is outbound prospecting. How's that working? How is closing working? How is, you know, account management, how is inbound lead response. But when you have your salespeople doing everything, you can see, okay, John is not doing well, but it's really hard to tell why is he struggling? Cause you have this sort of like hairball of stuff. He has to do everything. It's a lot harder to figure out what the problem is with him. So, what happens is a couple more points when you specialize this way, people can be more successful. So they're happier and mm-hmm. it's not, yeah, it's not about being bored. It's they can be better at something and that feels good. And when you hire, it makes it easier to hire into roles because you don't have to hire someone who could do everything. You know, you don't have to hire a unicorn. You yep. can hire someone who's, um, you know, again, for a prospector role, they only need to learn prospecting for a closer role. Then you only need to learn closing. Well, I mean, for a closer role, you'd hire someone with experience, but they have a lot less to learn. So it's faster for them to ramp. It's easier for them to be successful at the beginning. And it's easier for them to feel confident in their job. So they're, cause they're not as overwhelmed. So there's just a lot of reasons um, that this is the way to go. And really yeah. the principle is about focus, helping people focus on fewer things that are more important. They can be better at. Yeah. So, so you were at Salesforce. In what position were you? I, well, I started out as the most junior, like the entry level job, the, the, the entry level job of answering the 800 line. <laughs> okay. That was the only, that was the only job they had in sales. The, um, the only person more junior would be, have been an intern. Yeah. And, uh, well, I, I wanted to do that. I'd been CEO of an internet company and we'd, we'd raised $5 million in funding mm-hmm. company the company ended up failing. And one of the reasons, because I as CEO didn't understand how to build and manage a sales team, a professional sales team. I had hired a VP of sales, but I had uh, say abdicated my understanding. I didn't mm-hmm. delegate. So when sales weren't working, I didn't really know what to do. So I was like, I have to work in sales to know sales. If I'm going to start another company, we're yeah. better than Salesforce. And again, the only job they had was the, uh, the website responder we call it uh, <laughs> now like market response rep or inbound SDR. So, so basically you, you had a startup, uh, it, it didn't work out. Then you decided to take the lowest job at Salesforce where nobody was doing sales and you built it into a, a very successful sales system. Uh, close. Yes. I, I wanted to get, take a job there to learn sales. So the only job mm-hmm. they had was a junior one, like whatever. I don't have an ego about it. I just want to learn. Um, mm-hmm. Now Salesforce was very successful already. What, but what Salesforce wasn't yet doing well was 
they had a lot of small business customers. They had tons of leads coming in, like thousands a month for small business customers. Yeah. Um, and they just built an enterprise product. They just hired and spent a ton of money on experienced field enterprise sales. Mm-hmm. We, but we weren't, all the, all the inbound lead generation and, and, the, and Mark Benioff, who's brilliant at public relations, we weren't getting enough enterprise or mid-market leads. It just wasn't, just wasn't penetrating. So the, the, what I did is I said, hey, look, I see this problem. We're not getting mm-hmm. these leads. We'd hired all these experienced salespeople and we thought, hey, they would bring in relationships and they didn't bring anything in and they're struggling. Let me, let me take a crack at creating an outbound prospecting process, you know, some way to prospect for appointments. Mm-hmm. So I'd never done prospecting, but I could tell we weren't doing it very well. I just, it was obvious. Like, I don't know how this works, but I know what we're doing is just, is just crap. So I read all a bunch of books uh, and then tried some things, didn't like any of it. But ultimately, this is where I wrote in the predictable revenue book. Um, I started using email prospecting more than phone, um, but was able to come up with a, a system to sort of email decision makers. Now they got cold emailing, um, get them to respond back at appointments and created a whole system, including management system, email metrics, everything to generate basically as many appointments as we needed at these medium and larger companies to fill our sales funnel with the salespeople. Yeah. So that was the outbound system we created from scratch there at Salesforce and wrote a lot about in detail in the predictable revenue book. And you know, now we help companies build their own teams to do this too. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you created this whole system at Salesforce. At what point did you figure I'm going to make a book? I'm going to start a consultancy? Well, okay. Well, here, not to digress too much, but I have a big family now. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I have nine kids, three dogs, and then we've actually fostered some other kids as well. So, um, and I actually had zero kids as if I only got married seven years ago. Mm-hmm. So what's interesting is in 2000, so I left Salesforce 2006. There's a few years where it's like, I don't want to do, you know, sales consulting. I've done it. I don't want to do that. Um, mm-hmm. But I did it enough to sort of get by while I worked on some other projects. But what ha- ended up happening was I knew I wanted to do a book. I actually had a book offer before. It didn't feel right. But in 2011, I got married. And my wife had a couple of kids from her prior marriage. Um, and then she got pregnant right away. So in 2011, I basically went from zero to three kids or you know, mm-hmm. two kids plus one on the way. And I still remember this moment where um, before that, I didn't really have to make a lot of money as a single guy. And I don't have expensive tastes. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have to make a lot so I could, but... I remember this moment was like, I have a family coming. I'm like, oh shit, I need to make more money in a more regular way to support a family. Because we also needed to move to a bigger apartment and get more you know, health insurance. And like, ah, so, okay. That really lit a fire in my ass to publish the book to, uh, and to start doing more focused consulting around it. To, and that was 2011. And it's interesting, in four years, uh, I grew my own income almost 10 times, well, actually 11 times from, you know, 70 something thousand a year to more than 700, like 800 a year because of, you know, the, actually the principles of probably predictable revenue, but also uh, the, the, the sequel from impossible to inevitable. Yeah. So anyway, the, the point is like what I always look at is how do you make growth a system? 
you know, before it sales, I didn't want to, a lot of salespeople are like, I'm not sure if I'll make my number this month or this quarter. And I didn't like that. I didn't want that. So I tried to make it predictable at Salesforce, right? And I tried yeah. to make it predictable. Um, I'm actually, ironically, my income today isn't that, isn't that predictable month to month. Um, there's other reasons for that. But, um, you know, how do you make growth more of a system? You know, how do you look at companies who have something and they want to grow? Why do some grow and why do some struggle? Yeah, like that's really where you know I think my books and what I'm interested in, um, how to find the few things. Like, right? there's always a thousand things that you could do better, or a million. That's easy to make a list like that. We all have that. But what if you can only do one or two or three things this year? Like, what are those things? That's mm-hmm. what I'm I'm most interested in. If you want to make your revenue predictable, uh, have you ever thought about making it a subscription somehow, your services? Yeah, well, so services companies, um, again, I have this sort of unique situation where I can only work, it's called 15 hours a week. It used to be 25, but it's even less because, again, the family's gotten so big. Um, mm-hmm. and, my, and so I have to, I have to make you know, um, or West side of Los Angeles. So I probably have to make something like $60,000 a month. Um, and it's been an interest. So how do I explain? Uh, I would love to do a recurring model, but it just hasn't been practical yet. No. It hasn't been something because it's hard to do. And we have a team and there's something we, now we finally have a business, I think is ready to, to move towards that called predictable university. Um, but to do a recurring model, it's like you have to choose your business. And up until this point, consulting and services. So uh, consulting in terms of companies, how to build outbound teams or outsourcing, you know, that has been the core business. And it's been easier to grow that rather than try to change a business or create a business around a recurring model, which is what we, you could do. But uh, that hasn't been our focus yet because it just, it's like doing another business. And yeah. I don't have the time or energy for that quite yet. Mm-hmm. How many are you now on the predictable revenue team? Um, well, in the predictable revenue company, there's about 25 or 30. Mm-hmm. And then there's another half dozen. There's like our Brazil team is. Another, so there's probably around the world 30 something now. Okay. Yeah. So it's small, but we're, we've done a lot to like lay the groundwork for the next few years. So I think you know, the way I think about it is, um, and there's a lot of people who are listening who uh, feel this way, which is sometimes you're in fast growth, right? And then sometimes it plateaus, whether it's a business or you as a person. And you can be working on things to restart growth, right? So if it might be redoing a product. It might be redoing your team. It might be um, redoing your, you know, your personal life in some way. And you oftentimes are putting planting the seeds to grow but you may not see that result for sometime might be for months it might be for years it's like you plant a seed in the ground and for lots of seeds or trees you know it sits there and the roots are growing below the earth and you don't see that you know the revenue doesn't come yet um Mm -hmm. first the the roots have to grow before the tree is going to sprout above the earth so i think it's okay as long and I know this is true for me the last three or four years or three, two or three, my income has been flat and I've been doing a lot with my team to restart that. Um, our business has been growing by the way, like for, mm-hmm. you know, well, my income has not, and I needed to, because again, the family is so big and getting bigger. Um, but 
you know, it's, if you're working on things, if you're, if you're investing for the future, what could be writing a book, which I've done, it could be creating a new product. Um, sometimes people are too fast to want it to like turn into money. Mm-hmm. And I think as long as you feel like, yes, I'm doing the right thing, it's going to work. And sometimes it takes a few years for, for that tree to spread out of the ground and generate a bunch of money for you. And that's okay. Yeah. As long as you're doing that, that investment for the future and, and you're really doing it in a way that you feel good about, that you feel like, yes, this is going to help people. This is going to be a great thing for the business. I can't say when it's going to turn into revenue, but I know it will. Yeah. If you're trying to like limit the amount of time you spend on the business, uh, how do you manage the, the fact that it's so linked to your name as well? Uh, well, I have a bunch of great partners, you know, and a great team. So, I, um, mm-hmm. you know, there's no way unless I have people who can, who can support me with it. And so the, and other ways to get more kind of leverage. So books have been very, I'm more of an author at heart. So the mm-hmm. painful revenue book, and we'll look at updating that in the next year or two. The, there's a book I did with Jason Lemkin of Saster called yeah. from impossible to inevitable. Um, you know, people said, I've had a lot of people say it's the best book they've ever read. <laughs> so for me, the way I do it is I want to build a, a reputation and a brand and like a set of ideas that really connect with people and then also a team around it. Mm-hmm. And I'm willing to, I know I'm probably more of a turtle than a hare. I'm, I'm okay working more slowly in some ways than trying to work really fast all the time. Um, my wife, I mean, let me phrase that. Um, I'm okay investing in things that will take a, a year or th- three years to pay off. Cause I just, I know they will. It's okay. I feel it's okay to work a bit more slowly on those bigger projects. Um, so, you know, uh, I, all I can say it's taken a few years to get to this point where I, I do work with like 15 hours a week. I really can't work more between, mm-hmm. um, you know, having watching kids at home and my wife has gone a lot. She's doing a lot with singing. So I'm sort of run, you know, managing a lot of the kids a lot of the time and, you know, supporting the family. Mm-hmm. But uh, I found a way to do it. It's not always easy. Just like parenting, it's not easy, but it works. Yeah. And uh, it's something that 10 years ago, I set out to do this. And I don't, it, it took a lot of years, the same thing, you know, it took a bunch of years to, I would say, you know, crystallize into reality, but it, it's working for me. Yeah, got it. It, you like have you always known uh that you wanted to do something in sales or is this something that only grew on you after you had that uh, failed startup um i never knew i wanted to do sales you know when you're a kid i wanted to you know it's not like everyone grows up saying i want to be a salesperson <laughs> yeah. um, what, what did you want to be you know like pilot or astronaut yeah and then even in college, I was looking at computer programming. I'm like, yeah, I don't want to do that. And then civil engineering, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And then mm-hmm. after co- I did civil engineering at Stanford and I did invest in banking for a couple of years, which I was like, oh, that'd be interesting. And it was for a while, then it got really boring. Yeah. Um, and then I went to software. At some point I realized I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Like I, I never had that, con- no one ever asked me what I want. What I don't remember ever being asked as a kid or ever, you know, actually until I did a, uh, an application for Stanford business school. Like, what do you want to do with your life? I don't ever remember that it might've been asked, but I, I literally don't remember until I was like 26 ever thinking about that in like a very focused way. So I, but I remember specifically filling out that Stanford business school application. What do you want to do with your life? And I was like, Oh, you know, well, I want to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. And, uh, that was, 
So, you know, but that led me to starting a company, which then led me to a company failing, which then Mm -hmm. led me to, wow, I really need to know sales. So So did you have one startup before Salesforce or multiple? Uh, one, one internet startup, I'd done some other small businesses, um, like in college, okay. college, I did a painting company and I, in high school, I, I created and sold fake IDs, so I was <laughs> a forger. Um, like, and, uh, cause in the United States to buy alcohol, you have to be 18, uh, 21, sorry. Yeah. Um, and then I asked a couple of those things when I was younger, but first once one internet startup before that I started mm-hmm. before Salesforce. Yeah. And you never got caught as a forger? No. No. <laughs> it, was, it was partly a way to make a little money, partly a way to, you know, be able to buy alcohol, and partly a way to like make friends. Cause I, I was, uh, I would say I was antisocial. I was just shy in high school. Mm-hmm. So I had trouble making friends, but I was good with computers. Yeah. So why do you think you're into startups? Why did you want to be an entrepreneur? Uh, my father was one. So that was, that was a, par- a big part of it. So that was where I started. My father started, if anyone's been around, if anyone who's listening is, you know, probably in their 50s or maybe, maybe 40s, they might have heard of Ross Systems, which in the United States was a big, um, you know, like t- first time-sharing company, then a financial budgeting software company. Um, it's actually still around. It was sold to like a Chinese, you know, Chinese company. It's been bought and sold a few times. But he started that when I was, you know, born basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's where I started in terms of, I think, the original inspiration. And then after doing it for, I don't know, a while, it's like I, I enjoy it. Um, you know, I, I got a lot out of Salesforce um, in terms of learning. And it was a struggle though, because like working for, like three, you know, three months out of the year, I'd be inspired just creating something. And then nine months I'd be sort of like plodding along with Salesforce, mm-hmm. um, dealing with, but I learned a lot about politics and, and internal working internally. And, um, it was a great way to get paid to learn. Right. So I think any job, if you look at it, can be a great, a great way to get paid to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, so don't complain about your job. Be like, wow, you have an opportunity here, but it was, I was, I was glad to go back out on my own after Salesforce and, um, start doing my own thing. Yeah. So I think that, do you, still, you know, do you still feel like you're getting paid to learn by your own company then? But, um, I, I try to, yeah, it's sometimes, it, you know, there's periods where I can feel that way. There's something new and there's definitely, mm-hmm. there's other periods where it's more of a grind where you, and partly that's because of limited time and energy. I mean, even last night I slept a few hours, but the baby was sick. And so even today, I just kind of feel like, like physically a bit like crap. Mm -hmm. Um, so everything, you know, like no matter how much you love your job or, and I, I love my business. I don't know if I love my, you know, love for me has a new, when, you know, in terms of kids, like love has a different definition now. So I wouldn't say I love my job. I love my kids, which is just beyond describing. Um, my business, my business job is great. Uh, but there's always days where it's better than others. And, I don't think that ever changes. Mm-hmm. I think when I was young and I see this people like, wow, if I just had a, a job I love and I could love it every day. And I, I, even if you have something you love, you know, there's going to be some days that suck. It's just, you can't avoid that in life unless you sit on the sidelines and do nothing. Yeah. It's better to be out there like an entrepreneur, whether it's in business or in life and be taking risks and doing things new. And sometimes you fall on your face, but you're, you're growing as a person in business that way, rather than being stagnant and sticking to, 
only that one little thing you do just because mm-hmm. it's comfortable. What is it mostly that you do nowadays? Mostly what I do in work is uh, consulting with, so I, our business, it does two main things. One is outsourcing for companies who aren't ready to do their own prospecting. Uh, most in the U S that part. And the other thing is, and that's what a lot of that team does. Um, and what I do and some of the other part of the team is consult with companies on again, how do they build their own outbound prospecting team mm-hmm. to be able to drive growth. So partly that's me working with some clients myself and partly is defining our, our, our systems to help companies go through the, the learning system on how to hire, how to prospect the metrics, the systems, how do you configure Salesforce, those sorts of things. So that's really the time I spend on it's whether it's working with companies on building their own teams and doing it successfully, trying yeah. getting it right the first time. Uh-huh. And, and building predictable revenue. What is it that, that keeps you up at night, at night lately? Um, you know, lately, not much. Probably it's just how to get things done. Mm-hmm. This, um, you know, when, you've, when you say, all right, I've got some number of hours and I have to some go to clients and some go to, um, like, you know, whatever email. And I don't have, it's pretty, it's, it's a little scary. I might have one or two or three or four hours a week of like real investment time yeah. to improve, like work in the business, sort of work on the business. So it's like how to get more time um, to improve our internal systems, like how we manage and track how our clients are doing is one. Mm-hmm. And along the same lines is uh, like how to better coach my, my team, spend more time with them. Yeah. So currently it's yeah. process and coaching. The process and coaching, yeah. Yeah. Now, at some points we're going to be, we'll generate a product or products. And, um, but, you know, if, you, if your team isn't like, we're far and flung where our team is just, that's everything right now. Like if our mm-hmm. team is in place and they, we have the right tools, things are go, go great. Um, but if there's, if we miss someone, if it's not communication, we struggle in some way. So yeah. the team and communication is so important. Also, I'm out of the, I live in LA alone and almost everybody's in Vancouver. There's like 20 something people in Vancouver and I'm sort of on my own here in LA. So that just creates little extra challenges around communication and what's going on. So it's uh, it's like team communication progress uh, are those areas that keep me up that, that I don't feel like I have them on top of as much as I would like to be. Yeah. How, how does that work exactly? Are you like the the face on the screen that is always there in the meetings or? As much as I can. So there's lots of meetings I don't I can't make. Mm-hmm. Um. So, and I I haven't met all the people in our company, but. I, so what happens is I meetings, I, I do what I can. We have like a sales meeting. There's like one or two meetings a week group I attend. Also, when I go on site with customers, I always try to bring one or two of the new people. So like I'm actually going to China next week for a, we have our first like company, a fast growing SaaS company in China who's mm-hmm. hired us for help around like outbound prospecting and improving inbound and churn reduction things. And so I'm going to bring um, two basic people from, for them for the training, right? They're, they're not coming to help out. They're coming so they can, they see what it's like to be on site with a client and see me work with them. That's yep. another way I, uh, I get people get to meet them in person. Some of the people I haven't met, even met in person yet at the company. Yep. 
What do you think are the main skills that you as a founder bring to your business? Is it like the coaching aspect that you, that you're referring to or? Well, one of them is like a yeah, deep expertise mm -hmm. in this area of outbound prospecting and specifically building teams to do it. So again, we do that. Our outsourcing business, I have less personal experience with. So I have a lot of, but my, my, I have a co co CEO who that's like his deep mm -hmm. experience. Um, and we work together in these areas cause they're very complimentary. Some, um, so that deep experience and just being an expert in an area, also a brand, you know, that was originally, I wanted to create a brand right, in an audience. So I think for me, um, you know, I have, I have more of a long-term role. Like I'm good at the long-term. I'm either mm -hmm. good at like really long-term or really short-term, you know, like the next few days or, or week, what do we have to do or five or 10 years out And my co-founder, co-CEO is good at more of the three to 12 months, you know, sort of the running the company and running things. And, mm -hmm. um, if you, so, you know, there's lots of things I'm not good at, but I think it's more important for the things I focus on. I just want to be really, really good at those things. You know, they, but they, what was that old book? It's, you know, basically focus on your strengths, not your weaknesses. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and, and what are these things that, that give you energy than these strengths? Well, okay. Let's, let's talk about energy for a minute. Cause yeah. with, with nine, so with the nine kids, eight live at home mm -hmm. and there's some young ones, right? So there's a baby who's one, there's a, almost baby who's two. Um, now most of the other kids are relatively self-sufficient, mm -hmm. but I don't know if, have you ever, do you have kids? No, not yet. Okay. Well, anyone who listens, you know, when they're under one or two, it's, it's a lot of physical work holding mm -hmm. type. I mean, it's, it's intense and driving the other kids around or, there's just a lot. So we do have a nanny that comes in, but the bottom line is I'm pretty much always tired and have been for years. You know, there's never enough sleep. Even if I have time at night, I probably, I try to get, I have to do like a blog post or some other, some work I'm catching up on. So what I found is before I had, before I had kids, I would, um, you know, I could, I would get inspired and write mm -hmm. after babies and kids um, especially the last few years, um, I don't get, I rarely get inspired anymore because I just, I'm always tired. So what happens is, how does it work? And I'm up from, you know, like six or six thirty in the morning to late at night. Uh, what happens is deadlines. Like where I get my energy from is deadlines. Where I get my energy from is, uh, you know, important deadlines. I can't escape from where I have to do it. So that it could include, um, like a book publishing deadline. Mm -hmm. It could include a conference deadline, whether I'm speaking at one or we're going to have our own. It could include, um, you know, every Thursday we do a, a newsletter. It could include also even like a rent, you know, like rent is its own deadline in some way. Like there's like financial deadlines personally or with the business, there's payroll. Mm -hmm. So those, that's where for, for a while I've really relied on extrinsic motivation or that outside motivation where I have to get things done regardless of whether I'm tired and or not inspired or not because I have to. So that has, that actually has, so the parallel would be if you're thinking about this and actually I wrote about this, I call them forcing functions. This is in the from impossible book, but think about if you want to get into shape, uh, what 
works better? Do you sign up for a gym or do you sign up to do a marathon and tell all your friends you're going to do it? The marathon. Yeah, I also, I've, I've done that a couple of times. The problem with the marathon is for me, but that's uh, another thing, uh, but, uh, uh, is that I tend to overtrain uh, because it's so exciting and it's not sustainable. Yeah. But that's another thing. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Exactly. You got to know yourself <laughs> at some point. Yeah. Uh, uh, and we all have those, uh, I don't know, those, those, I won't say weaknesses, but the places we, things we know we have to do mm-hmm. or we should, or we shouldn't do, but we do it anyway. Um, so anyway, that is where I get the energy from because I may not have much time to, to rest for another year or two. Yeah. Until, until the baby, until we don't have anyone, any babies who are under like two. So, so the way you deal with it is chasing deadlines, basically. Yeah, that's how that's how it works. Yeah, kids kids have to be at school a certain time. My wife leaves a certain time for her music classes. That's that's a lot of it. Yeah. Now, the one other thing is, uh, I often lately have been poor about putting time on the calendar for myself. Mm-hmm. It's just because I'm, but um, it's something I need to do. Whether it's to exercise, which I haven't done for a while regularly, although I move around a lot every day. I mean, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm rarely sitting still. Um, but the only way I get it something done, again, if I say I wanted to spend a, some time woodworking um, or drawing or sleeping or taking a nap, I would have to put it on my calendar. If it's not on the calendar, it just doesn't happen. I have to like block it out ahead of time and yeah. do it. Because otherwise, in the moment, there's always a baby to play with and my wife needs something or I, need, I have some work I need to do and I, just, I don't um, get to the self-care that I really do need and I don't do enough of now. Mm-hmm. So you very consciously decide like this is family time, this is me time, this is business time and then there's these deadlines that keep you awake. Uh, in- yeah. Yeah, as much as, and I have our routines. So, you know, the, the days and the weeks are generally, yeah. You know, but it's that the, the calendar drives a lot of this, whether it's like daily activities, routines around school or, um, or around like business deadlines or personal deadlines. Yeah. What is kind of your like long-term goal with predictable revenue? What do you want to achieve? So we want to be the number one sales brand in the world mm-hmm. in a way that helps inspire people that they can learn how to make more money in ways that feel good. Cool. Right. Because yeah, sales, I think deservedly so has a, a lot of leaves a bad taste in many people's mouths. Um, but it can be a noble it's well, first of all, it's an important, it's vital to make money. Yeah. Even as a life skill, if you don't know how to sell yourself an idea or a product, you're not going to accomplish anything in life, really, whether you're trying mm-hmm. to start a, start a nonprofit, get a promotion, get a job, start a company. It's a life skill. So we want people to understand they can, there are ways to do it that feel good for you and the customer there's, it's, it's not rocket science. Anyone can learn how to do it. Any big company, small company, individual, a mom can do it. Um, but be the number one brand around the world. Plus, create a culture in our own company that's really very innovative and uh, I would say humanistic. The people mm-hmm. get a lot of personal value at it. They get paid to learn. It's not always easy. They get challenged. But they also, we're, that we have a great uh, culture to develop future entrepreneurs too. Yeah. It, it, uh, when I asked the question, it came out pretty quickly. Is it a mission statement you've written down somewhere? 
Uh, yeah, we've talked about it. We have it written down someplace. No, and probably not exactly the same way, but yeah, we've we've talked about it internally. And I, there's one other part. I I know there's three parts. And I forget any others, but I know for number one brand sales brand in the world and creating a culture of innovation and um, developing mm-hmm. our people, which also includes pushing people to do more than they think they can. Yeah. Cool. Slowly wrapping up, uh, what's the latest good book you've read and why did you choose to read it? Well, what's funny is I haven't read any business books lately. <laughs> but there's any other books is fine, fine as well. Yeah. Yeah. Cause so there's like, there's my wife, you know, really into reading about Shakespeare and mm-hmm. the theories that Shakespeare didn't write the, his, all the plays attributed to Shakespeare. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a woman named Amelia Bassano who we now believe just from reading books is the most likely person who wrote who, or who was the leading author. Cause there's a lot of collaboration on the plays, whether she collaborated with Shakespeare or not, who knows there's no one really knows cause there's so little detail, but uh, uh, the book it's called the book, one of the, the key books and it's dense. It's called the dark lady's mask. I believe mm-hmm. around uh, sort of all the conclusions are oh, no, it's not, she's not the dark lady's mask. I'll, I'll look it up here in a second. But basically, the Amelia Bassano, or also her last name changed, Amelia Lanier, was actually the, the main author behind Shakespeare's plays. Mm-hmm. So um, the book, name, the author is named John Hudson. So the book was called, I'll find it. But that was the last book. Um, and there's been some related books around Shakespeare that we've been reading and looking at. Uh, why uh, did actually, you choose to read these books? Um, well, my wife got me into it. So she's been obsessed and mm-hmm. she wants to, uh, you know, she wants to develop some kind of, uh, I don't know, she's been just, I don't know how she got onto it. She's been really obsessed with it and interested in it. So she yeah. got me into it. So we're uh, working on some ideas around, around that. Okay. So the book, the book, that book's name is Shakespeare's Dark Lady. So again, very academic, not very interesting unless you, <laughs> but, uh, you know, again, there's a lot of books out there, people trying to prove or disprove who wrote Shakespeare's plays. This is where we've sort of settled on is what we think could be the most likely person. If you haven't even heard of this, the fact that Shakespeare may not be the, uh, the author, there's a site called Shakespeare, this, the Shakespeare Authorship Trust, I believe. Shakespeare, mm-hmm. who's there basically they list out 80, 80 candidates to write. They list out why people don't think Shakespeare, like the evidence that Shakespeare didn't write them mm-hmm. and like 80 other candidates for who might've uh, written it. So I don't know, it's just interesting. I think it's the Shakespeare authorship trust, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. It's in, uh, in England. So I don't know. You never know. Right. And it's impossible. There's just not, there's just a lot less evidence than you think of what happened back then. And it's interesting. It's just like a, a Sherlock Holmes puzzle to sort of go back and piece through like what really happened and what you believe. And but that's that's been our obsession lately. Yeah, that that's funny actually. The last book I've read was uh, I went when we were in Brazil um, over New Year's. I bought this uh, huge uh, collection of all the uh, Sherlock Holmes stories, and I'm lo- now in uh, I think sixty percent. Yeah, those uh, are some great ones. Pretty nice. Yeah. Do you, do, you, do you speak Portuguese or do you pick it up in English? Uh, no, I pick it up in English. Uh, I'm, I'm studying Portuguese and it's going pretty well. 
um, but I'm not not good enough yet to read Sherlock Holmes in, in Portuguese. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that would be crazy. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I love the love Sherlock Holmes. I have one of those compilations someplace. Mm-hmm. But you never go wrong. He's actually I heard I think he was the most. It's like the character most um, like the most movies have been made about. There's some record that way, like the the most movies or the most shows have been made about Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. It could be off, but yeah, you know, I you know. I really love the one with uh, with with Cumberbatch. Yeah, that's a great one. That's yeah. a great one. Anyhow, uh, last yeah. question: Is there anything you wish uh, you'd have known when you started out? Um, I mean, how much time do you have? <laughs> so, if there's one thing, you know, um. Uh, I would say, you know, I could, there's a bunch of things, but one, I would say probably a non-obvious thing is how, what a positive effect when you have real friends and family who are supporting you and you're in touch with them and they believe in you, how helpful that can be, how important that is. Uh, or maybe they're depending on you to yeah. you being successful in business. You know, I was more of a loner for a long time and it's not bad, but, uh, having, so having a family and the sort of having them there to have something else to work on and think about other than work, like bouncing it out, having them just believe in me or having a reason to, to focus and work hard. There's, there's not only say one reason, except I didn't really appreciate if you want to make money and want to be successful and you think about family and maybe you have one family is a distraction or family is a burden. It, it doesn't have to be, it could actually be a huge help and support structure and motivator for you to be more successful than you would be on your own. That was, that's one, probably the main, not if it's the main one, but yeah, that'd be the one I'd want to pick out as maybe a non-obvious thing to many people out there who uh, don't appreciate it enough. Like I didn't. I fully agree. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for the super open uh, conversation. Uh, thank you for being on Founder Coffee. Yeah. Thank you, Jerome. That's it for this episode of Founder Coffee. We hope you liked it. Let the world know if you did. Thanks for listening, guys.